Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast for Zionstone United Church of Christ in Northampton, Pennsylvania. My name is Pastor Mike Landsman, and this podcast is taken from my weekly Sunday sermons. I pray that they'll be a blessing to you, and if you're ever in the area, please stop in and worship with us. We'd love to have you. Good morning. So I'd like to continue to uh, welcome people to come to our Wednesday evening services here at 7, uh, 7 p.m. We had a, a I, I thought it was a great one last week, Wednesday, so uh, please, well not last, this past one, so come on out at 7 p.m. here as we continue through, through Lent. Uh, if you missed some of the services, you can go on our podcast and uh, find them there. You can find that on our Facebook page or you can go to a podcast, whatever your podcast app that you use and look up the name of the church and you'll see us uh, right there. Uh, we have so, an interesting selection of uh, texts this morning. We have the Decalogue and Exodus, and then we have St. Paul's words about the, 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 the word of the cross, and then Christ's actions in the, in the temple. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18-25, St. Paul says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So what we have here, Paul is kind of giving an extended commentary on the meaning of the cross. He takes human wisdom and he casts it against God's wisdom, what humans consider to be wise compared with what God considers to be wise. And what God considers to be wise, his acts of wisdom, are, are, is the word of the message of the cross. And Paul says, to those who are being saved, it is the power of God, right? This is an event of God's interaction to save the world. So we could say then that the cross is the central event of human history. And the cross reframes everything, including human wisdom and human knowledge and how we relate to one, of, uh, to one another. And then the cross also, as the supreme event of human history, also divides, I think, people up into those who are perishing, as he says here, and those who are being saved. To those who are being saved. There's a commentator that I love named Hayes. He says, uh, much of the controversy at Corinth may have been stirred up by the tendency for new believers to regard Paul and the other Christian preachers as public speakers competing for attention and approval alongside other popular philosophers. Paul's forceful rebuttal is designed to reframe the categories of the debate and to put the gospel in a category apart from other varieties of wisdom. The gospel is not an esoteric body of knowledge. It's not a slickly packaged philosophy. It is not a schema for living a better life. Instead, it is an announcement about God's intervention in the world for the sake of the world. Then Paul continues, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The Jews demand signs and the Greek seek wisdom. So God has made foolish the wisdom of the age through the cross. Now is Paul saying here that there are no legitimate sources of human knowledge? No, he's not saying that. He's not saying that we can't learn things with rational human knowledge. He's not, he's not, uh, he's not creating like a Gnostic scheme where you have to have secret wisdom to ascend levels. And he's not saying that we can't see and observe things about the natural world and we can't see what kind of animals live here, and uh, what animals live over here, and uh, we can't figure out how the stars move or the earth moves. He's not saying that humans can't know anything. 
He's not saying that there are no legitimate sources of human knowledge. What he's saying here is that what seems to pass for wisdom in the light of the cross is foolishness. That the wisdom of humanity itself cannot save. So there's no philosophy, no systematic breakdown of knowledge is going to be able to save. No popular level beliefs about gods and goddesses of that, that age and of our age can, can save. No capitulation either to the demands of the Jews or the Gentiles. The Jews demand a sign, right? They expect these Old Testament power signs. And the Greeks expect logical and aesthetically pleasing communication. The Jews expect power signs. So if you think about the prophets in the Old Testament, you know, you have prophets like Ezekiel. And God tells Ezekiel, you should, have you ever read the book of Ezekiel? It is crazy. You should go check it out one day. There is some crazy stuff in there. But God tells Ezekiel the one day, yeah, man, I want you to uh, get naked and lay on your side for a year. <laughs> and Ezekiel says, are you sure? Okay. And he does it, right? They enact these, these, God asks them to enact these signs. And oftentimes with Old Testament prophets, they also have power that, that go with their signs. Like Elijah will come and he'll prophesy and he'll rebuke rain uh, for three years. Or he'll call down fire from heaven on the false prophets. Or there are these power signs. And the, and, and the Jews of this day, in regards to what Jesus is doing, is they're asking for a sign by which he's cleansing uh, the, temp the temple. But we'll get into it in a little bit. But what Paul is saying here is that the cross is a sign, and the cross is itself the wisdom of God. And Paul's very careful here because he's trying to tell them that he's not coming to speak to them in like an aesthetically pleasing way. He's not trying to craft super complicated and complex levels of argumentation like they were used to. There were popular public speakers at the time that could come and they could craft a really well-rounded debate and they, they would travel around and do public speaking and they would get paid for it and they go from place to place to place. Paul, what Paul is doing here, he's saying this is not what that is because what I'm actually proclaiming to you, what I'm actually saying to you, the power that's inherent in the cross of Christ is counterintuitive. It looks like, like we said to the kids earlier, it looks like a defeat, but it actually isn't a defeat I think it's the, one of the church fathers named St. Athanasius. He says, it is a monument to death's defeat. And then Paul says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So try to grasp Paul's concept as you're hearing it, right? The Roman instrument of torture and death is the cross. Jesus is the crucified Messiah, and from a certain point of view shows how the powers of the world triumphed over him. However, God has reversed this, causing Jesus to triumph over the powers of the world through his crucifixion and his death and resurrection. Now we move into the, the gospel reading here in John about the, about the Passover. I'll just reread it really briefly. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went to Jerusalem in the temple. He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. I think right here we forget this story, right? We have this picture of Jesus in our mind, a Jesus who doesn't get angry at things, Jesus who doesn't get angry when he sees the people of God being abused or misused. We, we imagine Jesus 
just kind of sort of floated around all the time, kind of like a Vulcan, right, from Star Trek. They're always very logical and nothing phases them, and you can yell at them, and they'll just sit there and be like, oh, yeah, okay, well, that's, that's not logical, Captain. Right? Jesus isn't like that, though. Jesus doesn't just float above everything. Jesus sees things. He reacts to things. He, re- he responds to things. Because we believe as Christians, and we confess as Christians that he is fully God, but he is also fully human. And so he sees them doing this in the temple, and he drives them out. And he says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. In three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and he believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So I think in this reading from John, we see a little bit of what St. Paul is developing here on this topic of wisdom and foolishness. John has the cleansing of the temple here in his gospel early on, right? The other gospels have it much later in the story. So you kind of think about, okay, what's the sequence of events here? Did it happen at the beginning of Jesus' ministry? Did it happen at the end of Jesus' ministry? I don't know. That would make a great study. One of you should get on that and then come back and teach a church study on that. Did it happen more than once? Did it happen only once? Is John placing it early in his gospel to make a point? Regardless, it's an important story. And so in verses 18 to 22 here, Jesus drives out all the lenders and the sellers out of the temple. And you could, I think I even preached on this last year, you can hear people go on and on about why he does this, right? About why the area that they're set up may have been the court of the Gentiles. So them setting up shop there could have been the place where people who weren't Jews could go to worship Yahweh, the God of Israel. And by the money and selling and buying, they are now barred from worshiping God in any way, shape, or form. That that could be part of the story, but we're not going to focus too much on that today. Jesus sweeps it all away. And I think that part of the reason why he's sweeping it all away isn't just because it's the court of the Gentiles and it's keeping Gentiles from being able to worship God. I think it's also pointing to his coming crucifixion, right? Because Jesus is the Lamb of God, as John says, the baptizer, who takes away the sin of the world. And so as he's doing all of these things, do you think that they just stood by and were like, oh, wow, yeah, that's fine, Jesus. Like if somebody came to your house and if you had a pig, Isaac has a piggy bank, right, in his room. There's not a lot in it yet because he's only one. But if his piggy bank was full and then somebody came along and smacked it and it fell on the ground and it broke into pieces and all of the coins fell on the ground, I'd be pretty upset. I don't know about you. I would be upset. Have you ever done that? Have you ever had like a jar of pennies or something that you're going to take to that machine that you can pour them all in and then it like gives you the cash? Have you ever seen those? If you had one of those jars full of coins and you were walking and somebody knocked it over and it smashed on the ground and everything got out, you would be pretty happy about that, right? You would say, come, everybody, knock this down. <laughs> you know, because you have to get on the ground and they have to pick everything up. And actions have consequences in the story. So Jesus is driving out the moneylenders. He's, he's throwing the money on the ground. He's, the animals that are for sale there, he's like setting them free, like the, like the, like the Earth Liberation Front or something, breaking into a, a makeup lab and like setting these animals. He's like, he's doing that. He's setting, <laughs> setting them free, even though these animals are supposed to be used for worship of God, according to what God has said. He's doing all of these things, and so the Jewish leaders are sitting there saying, who do you think you are? By what authority are you doing this? What sign are you going to show us that what you're doing here, disrupting 
all of this commerce that is tied into our worship of God, who are you to do it and what sign are you going to show us that says that this is okay? And Jesus says, right, we know the response. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. And of course, they don't understand. He's speaking of himself. 46 years, it took us 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to build it in three days? And he's speaking of himself. He's referring to his body. Notice they demanded a sign. What did we just read in 1 Corinthians? Paul says the Jews demand a sign. The Greeks, wisdom, or words of wisdom. And here's the thing. They got what they demanded. The cross is the sign. Jesus' death and his resurrection, that is the sign that, every, that legitimizes everything that he did, everything that he said. The cross, the empty tomb, the resurrection, that is the sign. It looks to them like madness. They don't understand what's going on here. But like St. Paul reminds us, in this act of Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God is on display. The power of God and the wisdom of God. And so for us, brothers and sisters, as Christians, we preach Christ crucified. We preach Christ, the power of God. Christ, the wisdom of God. The, the, the God that we worship manifests himself in a particular way, at a particular place, in a particular time. And how God has done that has repercussions for all humanity, regardless of creed or where you're born or who you are. We preach Christ crucified. That is the message as Christians that we proclaim. Not political points, not pet projects, not agendas. We preach and Christian preaching and our proclamation, even not coming from a pulpit, even when you go out in your daily lives, where you are to proclaim as Christians, is that Christ has been crucified and been raised. Yeah, that was Hadley saying amen. All right, I'll take it, Hadley. I love it. <laughs> Hadley's got a little Pentecostal in there. That's good. That's good. Thank you. We preach Christ, brothers and sisters. But then that message then of God's reconciliation of the world, then that leads us into acts of love. That then leads us into acts of charity for the good of others, for the good of the poor, for the good of the homeless, for the different charities that we support here. Like we, we talked about New Bethany, and we'll be talking a little bit more about that and the offering that we take up for them. That is money that is going to buy things that they've actually asked for, Right? The message of the cross is Christ crucified. And how we receive that message, we proclaim that message, and then that message of God's reconciliation, God's salvation, that he has saved us from death, that he has raised us from death, that he has taken us from death, and he has made us alive, Scripture tells us. St. Paul says that you, are, I think in the book of Titus 3, 3 through 7, he says you were dead, but he's made you alive. Not by works, by, but by his own mercy that he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ. So in the cross, it looks like that the wisdom, wisdom of God is manifested in what looks like folly. 
to those who are perishing, to those who are outside of Christ, our worship of a crucified and risen Messiah does not make sense. But what Paul is saying in what seems counterintuitive is actually the power and the wisdom of God on display. Christ on the cross raised for all to see. That is God's wisdom on display, even if it doesn't make sense to us. That is how God has chosen to manifest himself and to bring his salvation. For those of us who are being saved, it is the focal point of the power of God. Compared to self-help programs, compared to religious gurus, compared to... I went, I'll probably get in trouble for this. I went to the Christian section in Barnes & Noble a couple weeks ago. And every time I do that, I, I'm not going to do it anymore because every time I do, I get angry. <laughs> because you see like a line of like Christian books and you're like, okay, this looks interesting. And then you go to the self-help section, and then it's like, it's all the same. I'm like, what's, what's the difference? And I think the difference in a lot of popular Christian literature neglects what the power of God is actually resting in. The cross. And that's lacking in a lot of places. It's a lacking in a lot of popular Christian literature. It's lacking in, in some churches, not our, I don't know. Maybe it's lacking here, I don't know. Maybe God is calling us back to that, to focus on that, I, I don't know. But God's power is manifested in the cross. It's on display in the cross. And as we walk with Christ through this Lenten season, as we go into Holy Week, we are reminded of the story. We enter into the story of where Christ is going. In today's reading, we're with him in the temple as he's scattering the money, as he's kicking the people selling goods out of the temple, we're with him. We are walking with him during Lent to the cross. And as we follow him, we're giving things up. We're turning our hearts towards repentance so we can be more and more like him, so we can do what he said when he called his disciples but what he says, if anyone, in the Gospel of Mark, you read it a few weeks ago, if anyone would follow me, they need to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. And so to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, crucified, who is the power of God and the wisdom of God, be all glory together with his Father, who is from everlasting, and his all holy good and life-giving spirit. Amen. Hey, this is Pastor Mike Landsman. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast for Zionstone United Church of Christ. You know, we have deep roots here in the local community, and our history is fascinating in that we predate the founding of the United States itself. If you're interested in worship that is traditionally grounded and scripturally faithful, come visit us. We may just be the church for you. You can find us online, zionstoneucc.com, or you can look us up on Facebook, zionstoneucc. If you have any questions, feel free to email me at malandsman at gmail.com. Again, God bless you. Thanks so much for listening, and we hope to have you visit our church in the near future.